pray. Father, we adore you, and we would adore you more, and we pray that you would help us this morning as we consider what it means to be a disciple of your Son. Uh, Help us, Lord, enlarge our hearts uh, to see more clearly the worthiness of the King and the King whom we follow. Lord, give us the courage to do whatever it is you might be calling us to do this morning. Uh, to let go of whatever things we are laying hold of so tightly, the things we trust in. Oh, Father, I pray if that is uh, the comfort of wealth, uh, the comfort of health, uh, the comfort of life in the United States, whatever that might be, uh, Father, that you would give us the courage uh, to exercise the faith you've given us, uh, to trust you and venture out on whatever the call might be. Lord, our prayer above all things is that our worship in this next hour would be pleasing to you, the worship of our hearts as we receive your word and as we offer to you the thanksgiving. And help us, Lord, to leave changed as a result of being under your word. And Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. As you know, I was scheduled to preach last week, but... Uh, the Lord had a different plan, and it was a much better plan. Uh, and I did tell Dexter and a couple of other people that I would get the flu again to hear Dexter preach. Um, man, that was a blessing. Uh, but the Lord is good, and, and uh, we trust Him, and we miss them. This is our first Sunday without them, uh, but we're glad they made it safely there. Uh, praise the Lord for that. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, and we'll be looking together at the first... Well, at verses 16 to 20. In verses 16 to 20. And the question before us this morning is this. Who are the true disciples of Jesus Christ? Who are the true disciples of Christ? Thousands of denominations throughout the world claim the title. And you claim the title. Many of you do. Most of you, I would say. Claim the title, Disciple of Christ. But who are the real disciples? Who are the true followers of Christ? And are you numbered among them? Are you numbered among the true disciples? Well, our text this morning gives us the answer to the question. Not are you numbered among them necessarily, but what is or who are true disciples? Disciples, And I want to give you the answer in a sentence. And it's in your handout, I believe. And here it is. Here's the answer. True disciples are ordinary people who have received a specific call and live in simple obedience to King Jesus. True disciples are ordinary people who have received a specific call and promise, we'll see, And they live the rest of their lives, day in, day out, moment by moment, in simple, ordinary, basic obedience to the king. My objective is to prove that statement to you in the next 45 minutes, Lord willing. That's my target. True disciples are simple people who have received a specific call and live in simple obedience. We'll see each of these, I believe, as we work our way 
uh, through this text. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Mark 1, beginning in verse 16. Actually, I'm going to start reading in verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately, he called them. and They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. You may be seated. First, I want you to see from this text that true disciples are ordinary people. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the theme of discipleship is woven into almost every chapter. And we're going to see it as we make our way through Mark, very slowly. Uh, As we make our way through, we'll keep seeing this same theme again and again. And what Mark means by the word discipleship is important. What is the word discipleship? What does it mean? Well, we see it simply in verse 17. If you look there, verse 17, And Jesus said to them, Follow me. Follow me. That's discipleship. Literally, he says to them, Come behind me. He uses the same language in Mark 8, chapter 34, if you want to flip over there. This is a key text in Mark's gospel. It's a key hinge It's really the hinged text in Mark's gospel. Mark 8.34, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, or follow me, he must deny himself. Up or neomai, the word means to refuse to recognize yourself. That's prerequisite number one. You want to be a disciple? You have to refuse to recognize yourself. It's as easy as that. It's to act in a holy, selfless manner, he says. So he says, Whoever would come after me must deny himself, refuse to recognize yourself, and take up his cross and follow me. That's discipleship. To follow behind the king. You go where he goes, you walk where he walks. His life becomes your life. His mannerisms, his behavior becomes yours. And the person who says, follow me to us, is no ordinary man, right? So far in the Gospel of Mark, we have seen that Jesus is, verse 1, the Son of God. Verse 3, he is God incarnate. Verse One as well, he is the Christ or the Messiah. Verses 7 to 13, we see that he is the suffering servant and promised Messiah King. And in verse 15, he he announces the presence of his kingdom. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. This man who's preaching, this man that Mark is presenting to us, Jesus of Nazareth, is not an ordinary man. And in our passage this morning, the king, who has all authority, the king calls his men. He calls the men that will become the foundation of the church, the foundation of his kingdom for eternity, Revelation 21. They will be pillars in the new Jerusalem. These men are foundation pieces in the church. Now here's the question. Here's the king, here's the, uh, the majestic one, the promised Messiah, the promised messianic king who will rule and reign with a rod of iron and under him the curse will be reversed and peace will prevail. Now what kind of men does the king of heaven recruit for his long-awaited kingdom? Well, by worldly standards, you would anticipate that Jesus would come and form a powerful coalition, right? Uh, A coalition consisting of powerful men, statesmen, influential men of society. You would expect him at least to pick men who would give him some sort of advantage in the world. This is what rabbis would do. So the culture of the rabbi-disciple, rabbi-student in Israel was that the rabbi would only permit uh, those people to follow him who were already a leg up on the others. Jesus said that a a teacher, or a a student rather, when he is fully trained, will be like his master. So the student, the disciple, the pupil... He represents the master. He represents the rabbi. Right? So a a mediocre student would reflect a mediocre rabbi. And so the rabbis would only permit uh, folks to follow them who had any, you know, some sort of potential. Right? Some sort of promise. It's like, you know, applying for a scholarship or applying for, you know, a university at Harvard or Yale or somewhere like that. It's not just anyone who gets to come here. This is what we have with the rabbinic culture. The word rabbi, interestingly, it's from a Hebrew Aramaic word. It means my great one. My great one. Right. Who am I following around? Well, I'm following around the great one. Right. Implied there is that I'm sort of a lesser great one. I'm on my way to becoming great. Well, there's only one man ever who has ever lived, that's sufficiently qualified to take the title Great One. And Mark has introduced us to him in chapter 1. Of all men, he alone should bear the title the Great One. You expect him to permit only the elite, only the premier Israelites to become his students. But what does the king do? Well, he comes on the scene and he reverses everything. Right? Unlike other rabbis who would sit up on their, little, you know, on their high seat and have all these students sort of clamoring to, to be their student, this rabbi, Jesus, he goes and seeks out his own disciples. This is not normal. It's extraordinary. He goes and gets his own students. He calls them. And the manner of men that he chooses ought to be a source of great encouragement uh, to you and I. Look at verse 16. 
As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Fishermen. And then look at verse 19. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. These are two groups of brothers, Simon and Andrew, and then James and John. All four fishermen on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Probably these two brothers were, sets of brothers, were partners uh, to some extent. James and John were probably a little better off uh, than Simon and Andrew. They have hired servants, you see that in the text. And so it, it suggests that probably uh, they were a little more successful. We don't know that for sure, but we can sort of have an educated guess about that. So here we have two brothers, joint operation. One set of brothers is doing a little bit better, but at any rate, they're all Galileans. And if you know anything about the biblical world, uh, that's not a prestigious title. Right? Galilee was not a prestigious place. Uh, it was not a place uh, that would gain you any access into clubs or special uh, groups of men. It wasn't a reputable title to bear. Galilean was sort of like uh, a diminution. It was a, it was a way of saying, "Oh, <laughs> they're they're not like us. Right? They're a little different than us." And bless their heart. That's what we would say in the <laughs> south. And Galilee was in the northern region of Israel. And it was separated by a big valley, a large valley called the Valley of Jezreel. Right? So these people were separated. They were rural. They were north of where everything was happening. And they were separated from the valley. Or they were the people that were on the other side of the valley from us. Um, and they often were treated with contempt. They were deemed lower class and largely uneducated. And these four brothers in our text, they fit right into all of those stereotypes. Right? Nothing prestigious about these men. And I'm going to sort of hammer that home for you because I want you to believe that. You may be sitting there thinking, well, they're not that bad. I mean, they're fishermen. That's, a, that's an honorable trade. Well, let, me, let me convince you otherwise. All right? <clears throat> they were on the Sea of Galilee, which is really a large lake. It's a freshwater lake. And it's about 65 square miles. All right? That's pretty large. So just by way of comparison, Eagle Mountain Lake, not far from us, is 13 square miles. Right, so 65 square miles is, is, is pretty large. And the economy in Galilee orbited around the fishing industry that was on this lake. All right, so here they are, these four men, plugged right into this economy, essentially laborers out by the sea. And here comes the king. Here comes Jesus. Walking alongside the sea. And he sees these simple, ordinary men... And two of them, in verse 19, and they're sitting in their boat, mending their nets. Probably, they've fished all night, and now they're working on getting things ready uh, for the next night. And the other two men, in verse 16, are casting their nets into the sea. All right, this is probably something like a, a cast net. All right, so 9 to 12 uh, foot diameter, lead weights all the way around this circle. And in the middle of the circle is a rope that comes out, probably attached to the fishermen. And they would fish all night, and then they would wade out into the sea uh, by day and attach the rope to them, and they would cast this net into the shallow waters. And they would catch 
usually they would catch something like a sardine. Right, now that's appealing to many of you. Um, I did look, however. So the Galilean sardine is a popular, uh, this is a popular um, traded fish throughout the region. But you, it doesn't look like you can buy that online. So you're going to have, if you want sardines from Galilee, you'd have to go there. But this is what they would catch. They would catch these little, sar- little fish, small fish. It's probably the same kind of fish they had with a couple of a bread, pieces of bread and the small fish. Something like a sardine. And here they are out there casting their nets. And they were catching probably these little sardines. And if they wanted to catch larger fish, usually, uh, they would do that at night. And they would have these massive nets, um, something like a seine net. And they would drop these nets down, 6 to 12 feet. Right, these ceilings are probably like, what, 13 feet, 14 foot, something like that. This is not my, my specialty. Um, but they would drop these large nets down. And they would work them out, and usually it would take a couple of men, five to ten men, a couple of boats, and they would, they would catch these fish. If the, if the, the catch was big enough, they would uh, have to pull it all the way to shore. Now, another way that they fish, and this tells you something about the kind of men these disciples would be, was that they would take that same kind of seine net, and they would drop it 20 to 30 foot down into the water. Now, this would require them, some of them, to dive down to the bottom. Right, retrieve one end of the net, pull it up, and then this is how they would catch a lot of fish. All right, so these were not um, these were not weak men. All right, don't think fishing here as you know Denny out in the river with his fly rod. All right, that's not what's happening here. These are hard workers. No offense to Denny here. Uh, <laughs> you are retired though, Denny. These are hard working men. Right? This is their employment. They are laborers. They would have been strong. They would have had calloused hands. Uh, they would have been dark, dark-complected. Um, they would have also been quick thinkers. Right? They were doing dangerous sort of work. Right? So they were risk-takers. They were the kind of men who would get things done. Right? Just jump in the water and take care of business. Just get it done. This is the kind of men they were. And here they are doing their work, largely unappreciated, largely obscure in the culture, um, in fact, Cicero, one of the statesmen of uh, this period, said that uh, of all the laborers, fishing and fishmongers were perhaps the least respectable. Right? Fishing and fishmongers, fish salesmen, right? Underappreciated, disrespected, and here they are, and these are the men that Jesus goes to. Literally at the bottom of the barrel, perfectly ordinary, utterly unexceptional, unexceptional, nobodies. Right? Perfectly average and undistinguished, uninspiring, mediocre, and these are the men that Jesus goes to. And I will tell you, this is profoundly encouraging to me, and it should be to you as well, because I don't know if you know it or not, but this is you. All right? um, we are not the kind of people who are, um, would have likely been called by the early rabbis to come follow them. All right? They're ordin- these were ordinary, basic People. And by calling these four men, I want you to see this, by calling these four men, Jesus sets a precedent and a pattern for all time of calling and equipping the most run-of-the-mill men, women, boys, and girls to do his work. And we saw that last week with Dexter and Jesse leaving. Right? They're here so I can call them run-of-the-mill people. They're not here, so I can call them that. Right? 
Now here's the big question. Why does the Lord choose people like this? Why does he choose ordinary weak people like you to be his disciples? Why choose these kind of men? Well, there are at least two reasons. At least two, and we see them both, I think, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. You, had, you knew I was going there because Dexter went there last week. Dexter almost stole my whole sermon. Um, but I want you to turn there, and I want to show you a couple things. Two reasons, I think, from this text why Jesus chooses weak, ordinary people. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify or bring to nothing the things that are so that no man may boast before God. So why does Jesus call weak people? Well, First, I think it's because he hates pride. He hates pride. He hates it. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. James 4.6 God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We quickly run to the give grace to the humble part, but he opposes the proud. This is a fascinating word, actually. He sets himself in opposition to the proud. Right, when I was growing up, I played football. And uh, one of the things you didn't want to be is set in opposition to the biggest guy on the team, right? Uh, you didn't want that. And here's God setting himself in opposition to the proud. And that's what we see in this text. Right? Pride, let me give you this, pride is essentially an attitude of independence from God. Now, you have to be careful, right? When you're contemplating your own weakness and your own inability, we have to be careful that what we're really not trying to get is independence from God. Right? We moan about our weakness often, and we, you know, we wish we were different. Why? Right? So I didn't have to think about my weakness as much. Right? So I didn't have to pray as much. So I wouldn't have to go to God as much. Right? Often what we're wanting when we want more ability is not to be pleasing to the Lord, but we're wanting to work our way into independence from God. Right, we want to live the kind of life where we don't really need God. Right, we want to be strong. We want to be uh, competent in and of ourselves to do what God has called us to do. But friends, God will not have that. Right? He won't let you do that. He will not let you work into independence from Him. Pride is the attitude of independence from God. I don't need God. I can do things on my own. It's, it's self-autonomy. Really, it's self-autocracy. I'm not sure if that's even a word but it's self-rule, right? It's self-rule. I want to rule my life. Uh, I don't want God, I don't want anyone else ruling me. This is why we have so many rebellion. This is rebellion, right? I, I don't want anyone else telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. Friend, if that's where you're at this morning, uh, that is pride. And God will set himself against you. Why? Because he hates that. He hates pride. Now look at verse... 27, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. This is what God does. This is what God setting himself against the proud person looks like. 
He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things to shame the strong. These are proud people. The base or low things, the despised, so that he might nullify the proud. Nullifies, ESV I think says bring to nothing. The idea here is cause something to lose its power, to make it impotent. Proud people think they have power within themselves to do what they need to do. And God comes along to you and says, that's not going to work. Uh, I'm going I'm to make you feel your impotence. Right? Have you ever been in a position like that? Where you just all of a sudden feel your impotence. You feel it. And it's hard. Well, this is God's loving grace to you. To, to show you that you are not an autonomous being and you, you dare not function that way. But this is what Jesus does with the proud. And he sets himself uh, against them. He's deliberately intent on breaking down all human pride. So he doesn't choose proud people. Why? Because he doesn't like pride. So he chooses the base people of the world, and then he uses them to oppose and break down and tear down the proud people, right? to rob them of their potency, as it were. Right? You didn't realize that. Here you are, a weak person who said, I'm going to follow King Jesus, and what we don't realize is that God, all of, all of a sudden, is, he's actually using you. You're just a tool in his hand to shame all the proud, proud people. Right? This is what God is doing with weak people. And God, in his kindness, keeps his people low for their good. You are low and you feel weak. And you don't feel like you have what it takes. Friend, that's where you need to be. Right? This is where God's grace flows the most powerfully to you is when you are weak and you feel your own impotence. Martin Luther was credited as saying, God made the world out of nothing. Um, and as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. <laughs> right? God made the world out of nothing. And as long as you are nothing... He delights to make something out of you. So God chooses weak people because he hates pride. Right? So don't try to work yourself out of your weakness. Right? Embrace it. Second, I think God chooses weak people from this text because he loves his own glory. He hates pride and he loves his glory. Proud people are glory thieves. And God will not have rivals to his own glory and praise. You see that at the end of verse uh, chapter 1, 30 and 31. He says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what it's all about. It's about getting, uh, channeling, um, ascribing to the Lord the glory that he is due to receive. And so he chooses weak people in order to demonstrate his great power. Right? I wonder if you realize that. I wonder if that's more than just an intellectual ascent for you. I wonder if you realize that your entire life is being orchestrated by God in such a way that at the very end of it, you will be able to look back and all the glory and all the praise will only go to God and none to you. He is using your life. He's using your weakness, your impotence, your frailty, 
your poverty. He's using all of that to bring himself maximal glory. So don't moan under it. Embrace it. All right? If you keep looking at yourself and your own weaknesses, you will continue. Let me give you a promise. You will continue to find much to be discouraged about. Right? You're going to find, if you just keep looking at your own weaknesses, you're going to find all the reasons you need to quit. All the reasons you need to stop. All the reasons you need to say no to that serving opportunity. If you just keep looking at yourself, you're going to find that. Right? You are weak. I'll just tell you that. You are weak. You are frail. You are too immature. You are not where you need to be yet. All of that is true. But what you have to realize is that that weakness is the very thing that qualifies you, friend, for service in Christ's church. God opposes proud people, but you know what he does with weak people? He uses them to bless others. All right? So don't run from your weakness. Embrace it. God's favorite instruments have always been and will always be nobodies like you and me. That's God's favorite instruments. These are the people he uses. He always takes the weak to shame the wise. The sooner that we realize that and embrace that, the better. And until you do that, you will not have the joy, the blessing of serving the Lord. And this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. You'll remember 1 Corinthians 12, Paul had a weakness. Remember that? 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has a weakness that he describes as a thorn in the flesh. We're not really sure what it is, whether it was external or internal, we don't know. But he prayed three times that God would take it away. Right? How many times have you prayed that God would take your weakness away? God, just help me be that. Help me do that. Help me speak clearly. Help me think clearly. Help me have the words to say here or here. Now, that's not wrong to pray that. But in this case, Jesus essentially comes to Paul and says, Paul, stop praying for that. Stop praying that this will be taken away. You need to realize that this weakness is divinely ordained for you so that my power and my uh, grace will be amplified. This is how he says it in verse 9. Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. You think you need something else in your weakness. Nope, you don't. My grace is all you need. Yeah, but God, I really need this. No, you don't. My grace is sufficient for you. This is all you need right now to bear this trial. You have it. It's right there. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The word power here is the, it means power or ability. Ability, right? We, weakness is I want more ability, right? I need more strength. I need more competency. Right? We think if I have that, it'll be better. And, and, and the Lord says, Paul, you're praying for more ability, more power, more competency, more strength. But you must realize that my power is perfected through the weakness of of my vessels. I will be your strength. All right? And then he says this. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? Jesus calls weak, ordinary people like you to do his work because he opposes the proud, 
And he delights in magnifying his glory through weak people like you and me. All right? So if you feel your own poverty this morning, you feel your own poverty of spirit, you feel like you don't belong here at Calvary Bible Church, these people are holier than you, these people are further along than you, these people are fill in the blank. If you feel that this morning, don't run from that. Praise God for that. Because you are now poised to receive the power that God alone gives to weak people like you and us. Right? None of us are anything but weak, ordinary people who follow a great and powerful king. That's what we all are. All right? Calvin said it well when he said this, None are admitted to enjoy the blessings of God, save those who are pining under a sense of their own poverty. None are admitted to enjoy the blessings of God, save those who are pining under a sense of their own poverty. Right? Those are the people God helps. True disciples recognize this. Right? First, true disciples are ordinary people who recognize their weakness. They don't run from it. Right? They don't try to work themselves into independence from God. No, they embrace their weakness and they throw themselves on God and say, God, you've called me to do things that are too big and too wonderful for me. Right? You've called me to things that I can't explain right now. Why I have this issue, I don't know. But you know. And I'm following the king. And wherever he goes, I'm going to go. And that's true discipleship. Simple, ordinary people who are following a magnificent king. Second, true disciples are those who have received a special call. All right, look at verse 17. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but look at verse 17. Jesus says to these ordinary men, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me and I, I he says, I will make you to become what you are not. The idea is striking. I will make you into something that you currently are not. It's interesting. The same word is used of Jesus making a whip in the temple to drive out the money changers. Of, of crafting a whip. Just like I crafted that whip, I'm going to craft you. Right? If you follow me, I'm going to do something to you. I'm going to change you into the kind of people I want you to. To be Specifically, he says, if you follow me, I will make you into fishers of men. Right now, you spend all your time with fish. You catch fish, you eat fish, you sell fish, you smell like fish. But, if you come behind me, I will transform you into a person not just bringing fish to the table but bringing men and women boys and girls into my kingdom if you follow me i will transform you now there is much to say about this call i just want to make a few observations about this call this call and it's really also a promise that's attached to it follow me and i will do this Right? Follow me and I'll transform you. First, this should be a tremendous source of encouragement to you. 
This transformation did not happen overnight. Jesus spent three years with these men, full time, trying to make them into what he wanted them to become. The perfect master still takes three years with these men, and at the end of the three years, they've arrived perfectly, right? No, no, they're still a long way away, it seems. It's not until after the resurrection in Pentecost that we see these guys really transformed into the kind of fishers for men that Jesus says he's going to make them into. And look at us. Here we are almost 2,000 years later, and we were caught by them too. I was caught by Paul, right? Reading Romans, right? Some of you were caught by Peter, right? These guys are still, God is still using them for thousands of years now to catch people and bring them into the kingdom. Praise the Lord for them. Praise the Lord that Jesus' work was accomplished. But it takes time. And I just want to encourage you with that. Some of you are new to Christ. You're new to following Christ. And you want to change so quickly. And you feel so, so slow. You feel like the change is happening at a pace that you don't want it to happen. You want it to happen quick. You wish God would zap you and change you all of a sudden. Right? I wish that too. <laughs> but you ought to know. And you need to know. Right? What Jesus requires of you is perseverance. You press on following him, and he changes you at his pace. There is no microwave manufactured for discipleship. It doesn't work that way. Right? It takes long-term commitments. One author said it requires a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. First, transformation doesn't happen overnight. Second, the transformation didn't happen without real failure on the disciples' part. They were not flawless. We know that much, right? Despite their perfect teacher, the disciples still failed regularly. So there's two points of encouragement there. One, if you're a disciple, if you're a new Christian or an old Christian, and you do something that you think was just really boneheaded, why did I do that? Right? Hey, this is part of the process. The Lord graciously shows us our error. We repent, we change, and we press on. The second side of encouragement is for you that are doing discipling. Right? You're discipling people. And, and all of a sudden, your disciple does something that you just can't believe. You say, what in the world? You know, it's like they forgot everything you've instructed them in. Right? Well, listen. True discipleship is not linear. Right? There are step backs. There, there are things that happen where we, we sin. Our disciple, disciplees sin. So we, like the master, have to be patient with the people we're training. We're discipling. All right? And Mark, in this gospel, he especially is hard on the disciples. Right? It's like he takes all of their dirty laundry and he airs it for us all to see in perpetuity, right? for years and years. Right? We see how they really are. And the point here is that Mark doesn't want you to look at these disciples and think, man, they were extraordinary men. No, he wants you to look through them and see... The God, the Messiah, who is empowering them. It's just like Dexter talk about, talked about last week from 2 Corinthians 4. You see the cracks in these vessels, right? And you see the cracks so that you can see in and see the light of the Messiah that's strengthening them. That's number two. Third observation here. Jesus knows how to handle weak, failing, immature people. Do you know that? Jesus is not surprised by your weakness. He knows it, and he knows it better than you do. He, he knows your frame. He knows that you're but dust. Remember that. When you feel like you have blown it, hey, we all have felt like that. 
All right? That's why Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and take my burden upon you. All right? He says, come to me. All right? Hebrews 4, he doesn't come to us and say, why did you do that? How could you do that again? No, he, Hebrews 4 says he sympathizes with our weaknesses. This is what he does. He knows who you are. He knows your weaknesses. You don't have to hide them from him. He knows them, and he can handle it. Fourth and last, Jesus will not fail. He will not fail or quit his work until it is completely done. Follow him is the call, and he will transform you. If you follow him, he will uphold his end of the deal. He will accomplish his work. He will transform you into what you are not. He will make you a fisher of men. He never leaves his promise unfulfilled. Let me, let me prove that to you. All right? There are four men called in this text. First one is Simon. I'll just give you two examples from these brothers. The first one was Simon. This is Peter, right? Simon Peter. Simon Peter started out as a fickle man, lacking self-restraint and lacking stability. But from the very beginning, you remember when Jesus called him initially, Jesus gave him a special name, right? Peter. You're Simon, but I'm going to change your name to Peter, which means rock, foundation. And when you think rocks, you think stability. You think all the things that Peter is not, right? Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, we, it, it could be. Uh, so, so, for example, we have, a, uh, we have a turtle at our house, a pet turtle. This is true. Um, it's a little red-eared slider. He's about this big. Uh, you know what his name is? Speedy. <laughs> and we call him Speedy. Well, Jesus doesn't name Simon Peter for comic you know, relief, comic purpose, right? He has a, a more profound, praise the Lord, intention than that, right? Gradually, as Peter follows Jesus, what does he become? He becomes the rock. Gradually. It takes time and time, but eventually, Peter becomes the rock. Right? He becomes what Jesus had named him. The same thing we see uh, with James. And, and John, really, we could lump them both together. They were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. It wasn't a compliment that Jesus called them that. They were fishermen, and they were strong, and they were the kind of men who could just get things done. They were big, strong they were used to just taking care of business, and they could do that. At any moment, they could. At one point, they uh, were treated, Jesus was treated unfairly by the Samaritans, and they look at Jesus and say, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just wipe them out? We can do it. And Jesus rebukes them, and that probably wasn't the last time that happened. But eventually, John is transformed from such a man as he was, put it that way, into the apostle of love, right? He writes the gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. James, eventually, you know, rather than fighting back and using his strength the way that he was uh, prone to early on, he's eventually arrested and ex executed by Herod Agrippa and becomes the first to be martyred among the twelve apostles. This is the kind of transformation that Jesus accomplishes. Right? It takes time, but if you follow him, 
He promises to change you into what you are not. All right? But all of this hinges on Jesus' call. He calls us, and we follow Him. And as we follow, He promises to transform you. What a calling and what a promise. We follow behind a king who's committed to our change. All right, so that brings us to the third characteristic of a true disciple. True disciples are ordinary people who've received a specific call and a promise, a specific call to follow and a promise that he's going to transform us. And third, true disciples live in simple obedience to the king. Look at verse 18. Immediately, Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed him. Look at verse 20. Immediately, he called them, James and John, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. This is a remarkable scene. Here these men are laboring away, and they receive a clear call, simple call, from Jesus. It's not complicated. Follow me. And all of a sudden, they leave their nets, their families, their servants, their boats, their possessions, and follow this man. And Mark wants you to scratch your head at that and say, what? That doesn't make sense. Why would these kind of men, they're not gullible men, they're not going to buy into you know, some sort of new religious fad. That's not what the kind of men they are. Why would they all of a sudden up and leave everything? It's really amazing. Well, if we're going to understand that, we we need to understand first that this was not the first time these four men had encountered Jesus. Remember, Mark is a fast-paced gospel. He leaves out a lot of information. So Mark jumps right into this this, uh, call to discipleship. But... In John 1, 35 to 42, we, we learn of another call that these men had received. They were likely disciples of John the Baptist. Not likely, they were disciples of John the Baptist. And they had been there when John the Baptist, you remember, saw the Messiah coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And it seems that at that point, they had believed in the Messiah. They trusted him. But they were still disciples of John the Baptist. Right? They were following John the Baptist. They were believing that this was the Messiah. But all of a sudden, in verse 14 of Mark chapter 1, something happens to John the Baptist. Now, after John had been taken into custody, what do they do now that John the Baptist is taken to jail? I don't know what we're going to do. Well, we've got to make a living, so let's go back fishing. All right, so here they go, back to their, their jobs. Now, the Messiah, all of a sudden, they're back laboring away, and here comes the Messiah, walking along the sea. And of all the men that he could choose, he goes to them, and he says, follow me, and I will transform you. Can you imagine the shock in these men's lives? You you don't get the impression that they look behind them, 
but you can you, know, you can sort of envision it. You know, who's he talking to? Right? Why is he coming to us? Why is this man that John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest man to have ever lived, clearly called of God, clearly a prophet, now that is the one who said, this is the Messiah. Now here the Messiah comes, and he is now calling me, of all people, to follow behind him. Well, any sane person is going to say, okay, I'm done. I'm following him, right? If you understand who the Messiah is, what is fishing, right? What is a job? What is a living? What is anything? This is the one who's the Son of God incarnate. This is the one who will rule and reign with a rod of iron and bring everlasting peace. And of his kingdom and of his dominion, there will be no end. If he says, follow him, I'm going to follow him. I'll go wherever he wants me to go. And that really is the point of this whole text, verses 16 to 20. It really is. It's about discipleship. But fundamentally, it's about the authority of the king. What kind of man can call people to follow him, and all of a sudden they clock out, and don't even, maybe not even clock out, they leave, and don't worry about taking care of anything else. They just follow him. There is a note of authority in Christ's voice that compels these men to follow him. So they get up and leave. It's not complicated. The Messiah's message is clear. God is the best communicator that there has ever been. Right? When he communicates, we understand what he's saying. And now, these men hear the call, just like the Lord's sheep, they hear his call and they obey his voice. They hear the call, they hear the authority, they see the man, and they simply obey. Friend, that is discipleship. That's discipleship. Simple obedience to the king. In fact, this is uh, part and parcel. I mean, it's fundamental to what Jesus called us to do. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does it mean to observe what Jesus has commanded? It means to do what he says, right? Discipleship is not complicated. The Christian life is not complicated. It's really simple. Do what the king says. Now, where do we know? How do we know what the king says? From his word, right? Now, there are a number of complications to applying all of that, but the point is, discipleship is fundamentally simple, basic obedience by ordinary, simple people. That's discipleship. Sometimes, simple obedience it leads you to cross the street and share the gospel, and to fulfill your calling as a fisher of men. Right? As you do that, you're going to fail, but remember, right? Jesus is working in you to make you into a man-fisher, right? to make you into an evangelist. Right? You're going to be bad at it at first, but just keep doing it. Right? And as you do it, God will help you. He's going to cause you to grow. Sometimes simple obedience requires you to discipline your child when you don't want to. Right? Sometimes simple obedience requires you to forgive someone who sinned grievously against you. Sometimes simple obedience requires you to do things you just simply don't enjoy. Right? Sometimes simple obedience 
leads you to stand up and speak the truth. Sometimes, simple obedience leads you to put all your, your earthly possessions on a storage container and send it across the sea on your way to Uganda. Right? Sometimes simple obedience leads you to Uganda. But that's the basic, fundamental discipleship. That's not extraordinary. It's not radical. It's not anything um, outstanding. It's simple. It's easy. And that's what we heard from Dexter last week. This is just what we, I mean, what else are we going to do? There's a need there. We can meet it. Jesus calls me to meet it. Okay, I'm going to go do it. It's that simple. Jesus said, if you do that, you will be richly rewarded. Not if you sell all your goods and move to Uganda. That may be what the Lord asks you to do. But if you live in simple obedience to him, you, be, you will be rewarded. Discipleship requires sacrifice. It always does. But he says, we read in the text in Mark 10, Jesus said, truly, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospels, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Have you noticed that? Leave all this stuff and you will receive a hundredfold now. This is not just if I sacrifice it all now, I'll get rewarded in heaven. No, 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 no. Now, you are promised a hundredfold if you simply leave, if you simply obey and follow him. Well, you say, I, I just don't have the strength to fulfill that sort of command. I love my things too much. I love my comfort too much to go share the gospel with someone. I don't have the courage. I don't have the faith. I don't have fill in the blank. The burden of dying to myself is just too heavy. I can't lift that cross. Well, if you let down your net, leave and follow him, you will find that if you and as you simply obey him, he supplies the necessary strength you need for each step. J.C. Ryle put it this way, Jesus never laid a command on someone which he would not give the grace to perform. And I know too that our duty is not to stand still and dispute. I'm too weak. Oh, I can't do that. No, not to stand still and dispute, but to go forward and to obey. It is just in the going forward that God will meet us. The path of obedience is the way in which he gives the blessing, end quote. It's just in the going forward that God will meet you. Unless you leave, unless you determine with God's help to simply obey, you will never receive the strength and the power that you need to do the thing he's called you to do. As long as you sit there and argue and say, I just don't have it, I don't have the strength, I'm too weak, I'm too this, well, you never will get it. But as you obey, as you walk with him, he promises to give strength. There's an older hymn, Trust and Obey. Some of you know it. The fourth stanza goes like this. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. We never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar 
we lay. It could be that you have come to Calvary Bible Church for a long, long time. And you look at people and you think, how do they delight so much in that man, Jesus? How do they love him? Why do they live for him? Why do they, I can never do this or that. Well, it could be that you have not been the beneficiary of the delights of his love because you're still clinging to those things in which you trust. Friend, true disciples are not those who cling to the things they love most. Right? True disciples are people who let go of it all and say, the king is worth it. I know as a disciple, right? true disciples recognize of all people, we should not be so close to such a holy God. But he is the one who came to us, right? We didn't go to him. We know that he came to us and he said, follow me. And our objective as true disciples is we want to be as close to that holy king as we can be, right? And we follow him. We understand that we're weak and ordinary. We understand that the call he's given us is hard, right? It goes against all of our tendencies of self-preservation. It's not fun to die. But Jesus says, if you do, then you will live. But not until then. My prayer is that the Lord would make each one of us here the kind of people that recognize how ordinary we really are. That we would hear the call of Jesus. That we would benefit from his promise to transform us. And that we would every day live in this simple, basic ordinary obedience to the king. My prayer is that the Lord would help us to be true disciples at Calvary Bible Church. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We confess that we have not been what we should be. And so we ask that you would pardon us of our guilt, for it is great, but that today, you would grant us the repentance uh, that bears everlasting fruit. Father, that our lives would be marked increasingly by the simple obedience that characterizes true disciples. Father, that our lives would not be wasted here at Calvary Bible Church, but that we would use them ever in increasing measure to your great glory. Father, that we would own our weaknesses and, Lord, that we would humbly walk as close as we can to King Jesus. And may we, Lord, each be conformed more and more into his likeness. And, Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.